Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And welcome to another Thursday night of political talk. And we have a great show lined up. And the primaries are upon us. September 10th, primary day here in New York City, but also in Nassau County and also in Westchester County. And also in Rockland County. So there are a lot of primaries. It's primary day in New York State altogether and uh, not the rest of the country. So we can focus a little bit and we're going to do that this episode. We're going to focus directly in on the New York City primaries and a little bit uh, the suburban primaries. In New York City, due to the preponderance of Democrats, uh, where Democrats outnumber Republicans about six to one. I think it's actually, that number is actually climbing. That ratio is actually climbing. In most races, the Democratic primary is the general election. You don't even always have Republicans running or other party candidates running. So it is to win the Democratic Party primary is essentially to win the general election. So in a sense, we're looking September 10th is going to be that election day. So now we're going to also take a look at the fact that later on in the show that there's going to probably be a runoff potentially in the Democratic primary. If nobody gets the 40%, and it looks like that might not happen, although, although in a new poll out there, Bill de Blasio is flirting with the 40% number. But I don't... Not confident he's going to get there. But let's see that you might have – then you have two candidates going in to face each other on October 1st, and that leaves about five weeks until Election Day after that. And that's the general election in New York City. So let's give you a rundown on what we got going on on the show. We are going to welcome a borough president candidate from Queens, Melinda Katz, former assemblywoman, former city councilwoman. And she is running in a now a two-way primary. We're going to have some political analysis from the political director of New York One, Bob Hart. We're also going to welcome former New York State Senator and now head of government relations at McKenna Long and Aldridge, Craig Johnson, who's going to talk to us a little bit about a heated Democratic Party primary on Long Island in Nassau County. As well, we're going to also have uh, Stephen I. Weiss from the Jewish Channel, news editor there, who has interviewed many of the mayoral candidates. And then we are going to have some political analysis in some of the races from Jacob Kornblue. So uh, let's jump right in. And I want to welcome our first guest, former city councilwoman, former assemblywoman, Melinda Katz. Not necessarily in that order. Assembly came first, then council. And uh, she is running... Mm -hmm. For Queensboro president uh, in a now a two-way race. At one time, it had been a wide-open field, Melinda. Welcome to Spin Class. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, let's get right into things. Uh, we're almost there. We're almost at the uh, at the finish line. And uh, along the way, quite a few of your opponents have dropped out. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Now it's a two-way race and how that might have changed your calculations with regard to the race uh, going into the home stretch. Yes, well, it's interesting you say that. We're almost there. You're right. You know, we've been doing this race for a year for borough president. Uh, it is now 13 hours, 8 hours, 4 minutes, and uh, 10 seconds away till the polls close on September 10th. I think this race started with 
a lot of folks that would have been very good candidates for borough president. Uh, we are all friends. We all knew each other very well. We've all served together in different capacities, either in the city council uh, or in the state legislature. And now, really, it's me and uh, one other opponent. And I think that a lot of it, look, is that we've raised um, a lot of money from the infrastructure because the campaign made sense for me. Uh, when I announced for office, the infrastructure just came together. I've been in office 20 years as a district leader, assemblywoman, and councilwoman. I worked for Borough President Claire Shulman. Um, so really it's become this uh, race that folks are watching and are interested in. So you're from Forest Hills. You represented Forest Hills right in the center of the borough of Queens. Uh, I, it, and your opponent, uh, Peter Vallone Jr., the son of the former city council speaker, Peter Vallone Sr., uh, from Astoria, and that's all the way in the northwest uh, corner of the borough. Does that give you a geographic advantage, do you think? I think what gives me the advantage is simply folks look at my positions that I've held and my parents and my family and the dedication we've had in Queens, and, and they think it makes sense. You know, my dad founded the Queens Symphony Orchestra, as many of your listeners might remember. David Katz uh, played at Queens College, played at the Soyford Bandshell and Astoria Park. My mother founded the Queens Council on the Arts. I think that, you know, I am now raising my children in the same house I was brought up in, by the way. They, they fell in love at Juilliard, moved to Jackson Heights, then bought the house I live in, and I'm raising a third generation of Queens folks in the house that I was brought up in, in my old bedroom. And I think that gives me an advantage. I think people look at the borough president as someone who can bring all parties together and that care deeply about the borough and the education and the arts and the culture and the uh, many not-for-profits that the borough president helps fund and helps work with. And I think that's important, whether the budget is high or whether the budget is in a deficit. You need to have a lot of these not-for-profits to just pick up the slack uh, of so many folks that are hungry or that need senior services in our borough. And I think that's really the advantage that I have. Well, let's talk for a second about the office of the mm-hmm. borough president. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would say it's a, it's a diminished office. Uh, the, you know, it doesn't have a lot of power. It's kind of a little bit of bully pulpit, and I guess that would be kind of the Marty Markowitz mold of uh, of borough president, and maybe there's like a policy mold of Scott Stringer. How do you see the how do you see the borough president of Queens? You know, being president of Queens, being it's so diverse and so so large. It's certainly an advocate's position, but there's also a lot of city charter mandated responsibilities for the borough president. It's 5% of the capital funding. Last year, the borough president spent $44 million on parks and on schools and on the infrastructure, the sewer system and things like that, Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in expense money for after-school programs or summer programs or uh, food pantries, uh, things of that nature. Um, And also the Euler process. You know, many of the synagogues and many of the groups that we meet with are very concerned about development, either keeping neighborhoods uh, small or families are expanding and growing, and they need to make sure that their congregants can stay in the community and make sure that they can build out. And so, and some of the synagogues, in fact, and yeshivas want to expand. So I think the fact that the borough president's office uh, has a lot of land use authority, and I was chair of the city council's land use committee for eight years, um, has a lot to do with this office. And so I think that it's a lot of things. You know, you can be an advocate, you know, like in the council when I advocated for Priority 7 vouchers or, you know, worked with a lot of the organizations like Queens Jewish Community Council. But there's also responsibilities that are in the charter. Uh, and that's how I form my expertise, really. 
So touching on the uh, Jewish aspect, and you know, we focus a lot of Jewish politics here, uh, talk mm-hmm. to us. You have a long track record, as you mentioned, within the yeah. Jewish community. Talk to us about the importance of the Jewish vote you know, and how crucial that's going to be for your path to victory and how important it, it might be, you know, let's say, for the other races even out there uh, within Queens. Uh, you know, Queens is a very large and diverse uh, Jewish community. It is a very large and diverse Jewish community, and I think it's great that folks are vying for the vote. And, you know, my history um, with the communities all over the borough, by the way, not only as chair of the committee, but working with Borough President Shulman, uh, is vast. And, look, I know how important it is, and I also know um, communities that come out and vote. So I, I do think it's an important aspect of it. And I also think that in the community it's important to elect people with familiarity, um, to the needs of the community, and sometimes uh, that could be someone from the community or outside the community, but the familiarity is extremely important, and that's one of the things I talk about when I go around the borough. You know, I talk about the fact that I've worked with Darche Torah, you know, out in Far Rockaway or Beis Yaakov for Universal Pre-K or the Queens Jewish Community Council, or I know the importance of the food pantries because, you know, I've got to tell you, when the budget of the city of New York is in a deficit or when it's really at a surplus, a lot of the not-for-profits that the organizations in our community um, have just pick up that responsibility that many of us believe should be responsibility of the city, and it's just not fulfilled, and there's a lot to be thankful for that these organizations are around. How would you differentiate yourself from your opponent, uh, Peter Vallone? I have a history of working with every community. I have a history of working not only with the Jewish community, but also bringing parties together at the table uh, in the city council when you know, folks wanted to develop large projects or folks wanted to protect the communities they were living in from development. And I think with that, I've gained the reputation of being able to bring parties to the table. And the borough of Queens has 160 languages spoken in our borough, and the fighting with the administration for city services, for money for the district, uh, to fund our not-for-profits, to be able to provide health care to the constituents of the borough of Queens, no matter where you live, by the way. And many of us know, like in Far Rockaway, you know, they're threatening um, the hospital that's out there now. I think it's important that someone as borough president has the experience I have, to be able to go to the administration of the city of New York, which, by the way, is going to be new, right? It's going to be a new mayor, a new controller, a new public advocate, many new council members, and be able to use the experience that they bring to the office and say, hey, we are the Borough of Queens. We've been underfunded in so many different ways that it's time that Queens really gets not only its fair share but make up for the past underfunding that we've had. Uh, absolutely. I think that there is a particularly in an area that you know I, I'm very familiar with is the Rockaways. Uh, there's no question that, that Queens is, you know, often forgotten. Now, they call Staten Island the forgotten borough, but I think the Rockaway is probably the forgotten part of maybe the non-forgotten borough. I think that's right. I think the Rockaways really need someone in office that understands the community and that they feel comfortable with going to and uh, have a borough president that knows the direction uh, to Far Rockaway and the Rockaways. I think that's very important. We work a lot with um, the folks out in Far Rockaway, and the needs are plentiful out there, uh, not only bringing retail and jobs to the community, but uh, different development issues and, and different infrastructure issues. The infrastructure of the sewer system and the streets are so much in need out in Far Rockaway. Um, and by the way, as is areas like Kew Gardens and Central Queens with the sewer system. But, you know, there needs to be an advocate in office um, that is familiar with all the areas of the borough. 
Okay, where do you, how do you feel, and, you know, the last question right now, I want to keep these, uh, you know, keep, be mindful of your time. Uh, how, how do you feel about the proposed uh, soccer stadium in Queens? I, I, Queens, uh, being very diverse, has a, has a very, uh, they say, a very large uh, fan base for the, uh, with regard to, uh, to soccer, and uh, they're proposing to put a soccer stadium there. Are you uh, pro or against? Yeah, I like the idea of a soccer stadium in the borough of Queens. I, I absolutely don't want it on public money for a dollar. I mean, that's on public uh, property for a dollar. That's ridiculous. There's a, a rich financer now who has the money to dedicate to private property in order to build a soccer stadium. There's also, they're also doing it jointly with Yankee Stadium. There's no reason that public parkland needs to go to it in order to build the soccer stadium. But I do think that there is a large constituency here in the borough that truly wants the soccer stadium, and I think that that's a a fair thing to look at. But, you know, one of the issues always comes up, the Flushing Meadow Park seems like anytime you want to build anything, someone goes to Flushing Meadow Park. I feel like I wrote my high school thesis on that, and I'm 48 <laughs> years old. Um, so I do think we need to have a real look at Flushing Meadow Park, what should go in there, what shouldn't go in there, uh, and how we're going to move forward with it. But we need to find a spot um, for the stadium um, and make sure that we're not giving up public parkland for it. Okay, Melinda Katz, uh, former city councilwoman, former assemblywoman, running for borough president of Queens. The primary is on September the 10th. And if you live in the borough of Queens, you better go out and vote. And, uh, Melinda, thank you for joining us. And uh, very possibly next year uh, you might be the the host of the U.S. Open. Uh, Well, thank you very much. And the Shona Tova to you and to all your listeners. And I thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Spin Class. Uh, we're talking politics, and we're here with Bob Hart, the political director of New York One, a all news, the all news channel here in the city of New York, and a great uh, fountain of uh, political knowledge. Every morning, Bob Hart puts out uh, the itch, which uh, has evolved a little bit, but is a great source of commentary. A uh, little little video of punditry uh, on the events of the day. So, Bob, welcome to Spin Class. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, let, let's get right into things. Uh, this is, I mean, in my mind, one of the most interesting races of any kind. And I'm talking about the mayoral race. Uh, I, I could get to other races in New York. But the mayoral race is one of those most interesting races out there. And, uh, you know, we seem to be coming to an inflection point. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A, a lot of people were saying in January or February, oh, ho, hum, this isn't very interesting. And there's been a lot of twists and turns. Anthony Weiner joined the race. We saw him briefly at the top of the polls. Then Christine Quinn you know, had a resurgence, the city council speaker. And now, if you believe the polls, and there's a new poll out today, the Quinnipiac University poll, that has Bill de Blasio, uh, the public advocate, in first place uh, with 36 percentage points. So the poll that just came out uh, this afternoon. So it's been a very fascinating race to watch, strategically, for sure, but also who's at the, the king of the hill, and that, that's flipped several times. So the conventional wisdom had been that nobody would be able to achieve the 40% barrier to prevent a runoff, and... Uh, at least if you believe Quinnipiac, although, you know, there aren't, there isn't another poll to back that up, but right now he's within striking distance. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Christine Quinn had said a few weeks ago that she was sure that there was going to be a runoff. It certainly seemed that way. You need to get the magic 40 percentage points and to avoid the runoff with so many candidates. You actually have nine candidates, if you can believe it, on the ballot, although several of them are minor. It just seemed mathematically very unlikely. This Quinnipiac poll, though, says, hey, it's possible. I'm still skeptical because... They're not including all the candidates, and granted, the minor candidates are only going to get, get a, a, a few thousand votes here or there. But one of those candidates is Eric Salgado, the only Latino in the race. And while 
he may not have a lot of name recognition. I do think that the fact that he's Latino will get him a few votes. It may get him a percentage point, which would keep the, the front runner, which is right now Bill de Blasio, from getting that magic 40% and avoiding a runoff. Now, was this poll post-New York Times endorsement of Christine Quinn? The poll started out on Thursday, and it ended yesterday on Tuesday. So about half was before the endorsement of the New York Times, half afterwards. So I'm sure the Quinn people would point out to, point to that fact. On the other hand, uh, it's Bill de Blasio has certainly been in the headlines before, during, and after this polling. So I do think that maybe Quinn would get a point or two from the Times endorsement, but I don't know if that would come at the expense of de Blasio, of the eight percentage points of, of, of the voters who say they're not sure yet, or from one of the, of the other candidates. The other thing we're seeing why de Blasio has done so well uh, lately is that almost the, uh, every point that Anthony Weiner lost has gone to Bill de Blasio. So they've sort of traded places in this uh, topsy-turvy campaign. Which, which, of course, in and of itself is interesting because Weiner has kind of been the the idea. Well, Weiner's natural constituency has been the outer borough, more conservative white vote uh, ethnics, and uh, it's always been the perception that Bill DeBrasio was the uh, upper, you know, maybe brownstone Brooklyn, Park Slope liberal. Uh, outer borough whites, and uh, you know, some, a lot of that conventional wisdom has really gone out the window. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think there was some white liberal interest in Anthony Weiner. I, there were voters out there who weren't sure who to, to align with. They remember Anthony Weiner screaming on the, the floor of the House for Obamacare, being very passionate about certain issues that white liberals cared about. Uh, the, the the conventional wisdom I'd heard from the De Blasio people quietly was that they were furious that Weiner got into the race. And I think they were right to be furious because I do believe that he stole from some of their support. And, in fact, when Wiener uh, imploded or started to implode, we heard from Bill de Blasio, Wiener should get out of the race. No one was really saying that so vociferously as de Blasio because I think his internal polls must have showed that every uh, gain for Wiener is a loss for de Blasio and vice versa. Talk for a second about uh, de Blasio and the African-American vote because it seems that he is splitting the African-American vote with the only African-American in the race, Bill Thompson. It's fascinating, and I don't know if I completely agree with all the poll numbers, but there's definitely some reality there. The power of the ad, uh, simply known as Dante, uh, which is uh, Bill de Blasio's son, uh, he also has a a daughter, Chiara, uh, I think has had a lot of impact, that a lot of voters out there, white and black, did not know that Bill de Blasio's wife and, and children are black. And... The ad is very subtle because it doesn't say anything, but you can see it with your own two eyes. And on top of that, Dante is very eloquent, talking about why he thinks people should vote for his father, and that has resonated. It certainly has resonated uh, resonated uh, with with some voters. I listened to a, a great uh, radio report by Anna Sale at WNYC, where she talked to some uh, African American voters, and that ad certainly had had an impact. And using anecdotal evidence with some of those voters out there whom she spoke with. So assuming Quinnipiac is, uh, is, is accurate, who, in your mind, should be more nervous right now, Quinn or Thompson? Well, I think part of the, if you believe what a lot of people are saying, and I, I sort of do, that, that the poll may be under-polling a little bit of Thompson, that you know, right now it's 36 uh, de Blasio, 21 Thompson, 20 Quinn. If you say, well, maybe Thompson gets a couple more points, maybe they're not reaching out to enough African-American voters, or maybe they're overestimating Bill de Blasio's African-American support, I'd be a little worried if I was Christine Quinn. On the other hand, she can point to, as you just pointed out, hey, half this poll was was taken before the New York Times 
the uh, bastion of liberalism, at least on the editorial page, uh, endorsed me. So that's what the Quinn people can point to, is, is that, hey, we, we hadn't rolled out our ads yet showing that, that all these papers had endorsed us. And that's what I think they're hoping for, is that they're getting a, get a little bump. But I would still be a little bit more nervous if I were the, the Quinn people. Even though she has the trifecta of endorsements right now, uh, that uh, and it's kind of odd for me to see the to see the uh, you know anybody on the Democratic side touting the New York Post endorsement, but uh, right. she seems to be doing that. Uh, th- those you know just to get for a second into behind the idea of endorsements, are 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 the endorsements? Do the endorsements still matter? Nowadays, I think they matter much less than they used to. I think for borough races, especially Manhattan borough president, I think Gail Brewer can be should be thrilled that the New York Times endorsed her because I think a lot of Manhattan residents, especially uh, in neighborhoods where there's a lot of voting, people haven't focused on that uh, race. But on larger races, I think that endorsements don't matter as much as they they used to uh, at all. And so that's something that's got to be troubling a little bit to to the Quinn people. The other problem she has is. Bill Thompson has a natural base. He, he's the only African-American candidate. Bill de Blasio has created his base of white liberals and maybe some African-Americans. Quinn's base is, is sort of, well, she's, she's a West Side liberal, but uh, not really. Uh, she's sort of middle of the road. She can talk about how she's worked with the mayor but taking them on. Those kind of things don't necessarily play well in a primary, uh, with a, in a primary race. They play great in a general election, but I think it's a different matter. Who, how does she define herself? Uh, with a very liberal uh, voting base in that primary. So the Irish part is not a big asset. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, that, it, it helps a little bit, but I, I live in Rockaway where there's a lot of Irish, and there's not a lot of talk about Christine Quinn there. It, where are they? Where are they headed? Are they, is know, that Wiener country? It's, it's funny. It was Wiener country, and I'm, and I'm talking about the west end of Rockaway, which is predominantly Irish and Jewish, not the east end, which is predominantly African-American. I think there's a lot of confusion. A lot of people are, are, have been asking me, uh, who should Rockaway vote for? The local paper, uh, The Wave, has, has been down on de Blasio. I'm not really sure where, where the, the white ethnic kind of working class Democrats go in this race. Uh, they may be all over the map. In a different era, and if his campaign had more legs, I think Sal Albanese would be a natural. He just hasn't been able to, to really make up any, get any kind of momentum in this race, uh, fundraising or with support. Just to get back to the Times endorsement for a second, something that really struck me was the Times and – Maybe I'm not don't understand the relationship as well. The Times hesitated to endorse Bill Thompson because of the UFT endorsement. Yeah, the Times. That's a great point. The Times noted that uh, very forcefully, saying nice things about Bill Thompson, but in the end, taking issue with the teachers' union. And the teachers' union has sort of become uh, this bete noir for uh, the editorial pages that you can't. And in fact, Michael Mayor Bloomberg said this basically: if the UFT endorses. That person, watch out. Um, and so that was one of the things the Times cited. I, I think that they view the teachers' union as a barrier to progress in the school system, uh, as uh, an institution that's not necessarily interested in, in furthering education, but basically uh, keeping the, their jobs preserved for its members. And I don't think that's entirely fair at all. But that's sort of what's become now, uh, become uh, what's happened to that union with with these newspaper editorial boards. So in this, one thing that's kind of interesting over the last uh, week or so is that a lot of Orthodox Jewish, uh, prominent members of the Orthodox Jewish community have run towards Bill Thompson, uh, at the same time him being uh, the endorsee of the UFT, which is 
pretty much opposed to any financial assistance for private schools. So you have that kind of strange bedfellows on that in that camp right now. Well, the interesting thing about Bill Thompson, uh, yes, that's true about that one point, but uh, the New York Times had a great breakdown today of where the, the candidates stand on charter schools. And he's, Thompson is not lockstep with the union when it comes to charter schools, so that's an interesting break. And his outreach to the, um, to the Jewish community has been quite strong. Uh, as you know, the Orthodox community, uh, parts of it can often vote uh, in lockstep, and that could also be underpolled, and is another reason why Thompson could be doing slightly better than uh, these public polls uh, are, are indicating. So last question about endorsements. Uh, I guess there's some hinting, particularly that you highlighted uh, uh, this week from Howard Wolfson, who took uh, some pot shots at uh, Bill de Blasio, uh, that, the, that Mayor Bloomberg might be interested in weighing in. Some, at some point on this race. Um, so first question is, will he or won't he, and uh, at what point might he might he do that? I think he stays out of the Democratic race because I think he realizes that his endorsement could do more harm than good. I think if you polled the average primary, Democratic primary voter, they'd be extremely split to possibly leaning negative toward the mayor right now. So I think his best bet is to do what Howard Wilson did, which was doing an anti-endorsement. Okay, maybe if I say Christine Quinn is the best thing since sliced bread, that could actually hurt her or make her not look independent. But if I do tell New Yorkers what I think is wrong with Bill de Blasio, that, that might have more of an impact on the race. Uh, the general election might be a very different story. Uh, the the uh, electorate overall, I think, is much more favorable than the Democratic primary electorate. I, I could imagine, especially if the race gets tight, of the mayor uh, jumping in and making an endorsement in that race, especially if Quinn were to be the Democratic nominee. All right, let's just uh, switch uh, to the Republican side for a second. Uh, we have now seen uh, that uh, that John Katzmatidis uh, might be opening the checkbook. It, who, who knows? He hasn't spent Bloomberg-type money so far, but uh, he is uh, on the air with some very negative ads uh, towards his opponent, uh, Joe Loda. He, he has not spent Bloomberg money, but he spent real money. I don't have a figure in front of me right now, but I can tell you uh, that he he is definitely spending the money, and those ads against Loda uh, are quite negative. So they're debating again uh, this evening, and it, I think it's going to be pretty fiery because they're, they're throwing some charges against Loda, and I think the Katzmatiz ad, the new one, with the Port Authority police officer calling out Loda for insulting the Port Authority police, is a very powerful ad. I don't know in the end if that will be enough to propel Katzmatiz um, over Loda, if you believe the polls, and I, I sort of do, although the margin of error is going to be very it's large. very small sample. Yeah, it's a very small sample when you're polling Republicans in New York City. Um, I, it, it should be an interesting debate. It's funny, George McDonald, the sort of the dark horse in the race, has been sucking up some of the oxygen in these debates by leveling uh, tough charges against Katzmatiz. But in the end, I think you could see uh, things really kind of heat up between Loda and, and Katzmatiz in a way that you haven't seen it so far. How much uh, how much damage can Katsimatidis do? I mean, uh, for do people are people out there taking him seriously? Uh, I, we had somebody on the show last week, a Democratic political strategist, saying that he is uh, the ideal opponent uh, for any uh, for any uh, Democratic uh, nominee. And uh, though Katsimatidis at the same time will tell everybody he is the worst nightmare for any Democratic nominee. I, I tend to agree the, uh, to agree with the opinion of the consultant. I, I think there's a, enough out there uh, that would make Katzmatidis uh, tough. It would be very tough for him to win in a general election. On the other hand, 
if he continues these negative attacks against Loda, should Loda be the nominee, he could actually be hurting Loda in the minds of, of some voters who may not head to the polls from November, remembering that ad, remembering some other, other tough mailings that uh, Captain Matisse is putting out. So that's the, the, the real damage that Captain Matisse could do if you believe that he won't be the nominee, but he continues these attacks against Loda. He could really uh, bloody Loda. On the other hand, listen, it could be as few as 50,000 people vote in this Republican primary. And I would not rule Captain Matisse out completely. He's been sending out these mailings. He's been having a lot more ads than Loda. Um, should Loda make another mistake, it could suddenly become a very close race. Interesting. The I, I guess when you have such a low turnout of 50,000, it's, it's, it's really hard to... You really got it. You really get rid of the casual type of voter. I mean, nobody's coming out to vote in a Republican primary, which is almost unheard of. Uh, I guess the last one would be, is uh, Badillo Bloomberg, and before that was uh, Ronald Lauder against Giuliani, and that was probably something that's more similar to this one. Right, and on the statewide front, we had the Rick Lazio, uh, Carl Palladino uh, primary, which again also had very low turnout and had an upset. You had Carl Palladino beating the establishment Republican Rick Lazio. The thing that Cat Matisse doesn't have that, that Carl Palladino did have is the sort of Tea Party rah-rah grassroots, um, and that's what Cat Matisse would really need to seize upon, sort of a, uh, a, a tough old guard Republican. And Cat Matisse has lots of Democratic friends. He's given a lot of money to the Clintons over the years, and so he's not really a true red Republican, so to speak. Joe Loda definitely is much more of that if you look at his, his ideology, the fact that he worked for Rudy Giuliani, um, and so that helps Loda a lot. If you ask a, a, a Republican who was really well versed with the party. Who of those three is a Republican? George McDonald used to be a Democrat and has Democratic friends. The same with Captain Matisse. Joe Loda is, is an actual uh, red meat Republican. Let's just switch to the controller's race because, of course, that is uh, one that sucked up a lot of the oxygen out there. Um, although you know it's not the top of the ticket. Uh, is there? We have uh, the whole world lined up against Elliot Spitzer. I think we. Uh, we learned this week that even Governor Cuomo is trying behind the scenes to uh, dethrone or decapitate uh, Elliot Spitzer. Uh, where where do you see this race going? It's wild. I mean, you're right. It's sort of like Elliot against the establishment world. And if you believe the polls, Elliot's ahead. The last two polls showed him up 19 points over Manhattan Borough President Scott Stringer. I don't know if his lead is that large because other polls showed it tighter before. But the one thing that Elliot is, is, is doing is uh, he's flooding the airwaves with these very effective ads that uh, he has this ad maven, Jimmy Siegel, really doesn't specialize in political ads. That's helped Spitzer. Spitzer's name recognition is very high. If you look at um, what's going on in the African-American community, uh, Spitzer's doing great there. Uh, many members of the African-American community don't know who, who Stringer is. Stringer today was actually announcing funding uh, to help uh, Tower and Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem today, uh, just coincidentally less than two weeks before the primary of Manhattan Borough President. Um, it's interesting, uh, Spitzer this afternoon is meeting uh, with uh, Grand Rebbe uh, Rabinovich uh, in Borough Park. So I think he's, uh, it's very interesting how he's reached out to the Hasidic uh, community. Um, and so you, you, if you polled the you know, you know, white liberal Manhattanites, Scott Stringer would be doing great. The problem for Stringer is a lot of people outside of Manhattan, even in Manhattan, don't know who he is, even though he has the support, of, like you pointed out, of all the newspapers and, uh, and the Democratic establishment. If it's a question of turnout, though, if the turnout on the Democratic side is also low, does he have, does Spitzer have the infrastructure, uh, the campaign infrastructure, to get his people to the polls? 
That's a really good question. I think what he's hoping for is that the people who, who are taken, uh, driven, you know, the teachers union or other ways to the top of the ticket, to the mayor's race, haven't really focused on the controller's race, and then just say, oh, oh I, I know Elliot Spitzer. In other words, Scott Stringer isn't necessarily going to have the Scott Stringer van. That's the, the thing that's going to be driving people to the polls is the mayor's race. And so Spitzer's counting on people going to the mayor's race, focusing on that, and saying, oh, yeah, Elliot Spitzer used to be governor, or he was a good attorney general, or so on. That's what he's banking on. But you're absolutely right. Scott Stringer has, definitely has more of a campaign infrastructure than, than Spitzer easily, even though Spitzer has uh, more money for these ads and mail. Okay, Bob, we're almost out of time. We're here with Bob Hart, political director of New York One and uh, the author of the Daily New York One Political Itch. Uh, where uh, Can we do a little lightning round with regards to some of the minor races? Sure. I, I, now, some of the council ones I, I, uh, I might take a pass on. but I can Okay, talk, so we'll, we'll, we, I can talk borough president and, we can do and, some of the big yeah. ones. DA, Brooklyn DA, closely watched race in uh, the Jewish community. Wild, wild race. Uh, it is amazing how, um, you're right, the Jewish community is at front and center, and I really don't know what to say in terms of prediction. Joe Hines, the, the sitting DA, is in a fight for his life. Ken Thompson is certainly not a perfect candidate, but I think there's been an effective argument made against Hines about maybe he's been there too long. The thing that, that might help him is, is Ken Thompson the right guy to replace him? And there's a lot of questions about uh, Thompson as well. Okay, uh, Queensboro president. It's amazing how many candidates are in that race, and it's really whittled down to two main candidates now, Melinda Katsu, who we just heard from, uh, uh, and Peter Vallone, Jr. Uh, it seems that the establishment is, is lining up behind Melinda Katsu, but this is not the first race where she seemed to be the favorite of the obvious and then and then not won. Uh, you recall uh, a race against Anthony Weiner way back when. Yeah, Anthony Weiner and also when she ran for city controller. And and I, I think this is her race, but, uh, you know, again, Peter Vallone has name recognition. He's very popular uh, in, in parts of Queens. I think if it was a general election, Vallone would win, but it's a primary race and it's the voters are more liberal and they might, might tend to like cast better. Okay, Manhattan Borough President. It's a very, that's a very weird race. Um, I have to go with Gail Brewer because, in terms of predictions, because she got the New York Times endorsement. She's a quintessential upper, upper West Side liberal. Those are the people who vote. I mean, you, you have uh, uh, Julie Menon uh, and Robert uh, Jackson as well. I just think it's a, uh, I just think that Gail Brewer is the type of person who wins that, that race, uh, and she's very, very, very well known in her district. Okay, Bob Hart, political director of New York One. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class and uh, the pre-primary insights. So we really appreciate it. Thanks. This is a much easier Spin Class than the one I have in the gym. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, this is Spin Class. We're talking politics here, and I want to welcome Craig Johnson, former New York State Senator Craig Johnson from Long Island, now a partner of McKenna Long and Aldridge uh, and the government affairs uh, unit there and uh, practice there. And... uh, Craig, it's your first time in spin class. Welcome. Michael, I am so excited. First time, long time. How's that? That's fantastic. Okay, Craig, <laughs> uh, I know you're on vacation, so thanks for joining us. Because uh, uh, It's we, always we, better to do this and talk politics and deal with my three children. Screaming uh, right. So happy to do this. Setting the bar low. I like that. So uh, <laughs> we, we, we just want to talk about Nassau County, and who knows Nassau County, especially the Democratic side, better than Craig Johnson. So uh, we got a very interesting uh uh, potentially interesting, I should say, uh, uh, county executive primary on the Democratic side. Upstart Adam Haber against the uh, former county executive Tom Swazi. And uh, the question is, uh, come September 10th, uh, we're not really used to a primary. The last time around, the favorite, who was not Tom Swazi, who was Tom DiNapoli at the time, was was shocked by none other than Tom Swazi. 
So uh, will you know, we'll lightning strike twice? You know, quickly, you know, the history is is that, you know, if you remember, that, that primary was held on September 11, 2001. And, you know, by 10 a.m. that morning, you know, voting had essentially ceased. And uh, they had the do-over call two weeks later. Um, and there's a lot of – there's always speculation that, you know, Tom DiNapoli, you know, was ahead in the machines on, on the September – on September 11, 2001. But over the two-week period, Tom Swazi built momentum, and he was able to win. I, I don't know if I subscribe to that or not. Uh, this time around, you know, I, Tom Swazi picked up the news editorial uh, endorsement uh, the other day. Um, he's run a very interesting campaign, um, one that effectively has gone back to the voters and said, I made a mistake in 2009. I took my eye off the ball. Um, I, I should have paid more attention. I didn't. Forgive me. And I can fix Nassau County again. Uh, at the same time, in the primary, ignoring, virtually ignoring uh, his opponent, Adam Haber, um, who is a, a very successful businessman uh, out of East Hills, uh, an area that I used to represent both in the county legislature and in the state senate. Um, Adam is a member of the, uh, the Rodham School Board um, and has been trying to, you know, uh, put a message out there of like, I'm neither of these two guys. You know, I'm one of you. I, I'm not politics as usual. I'm not a politician. You know, I'm here to, to fix, you know, the problems that have been caused both by Ed Mangano and Tom Swazi. Uh, what Tom uh, Swazi has done is ignored him, and I think that has been a very effective strategy um, because not a lot of people, I think, are paying attention. Even with 13 days out, uh, this is going to be a very low turnout primary. Uh, the Nassau County Democratic uh, apparatus is supporting Tom. Jay Jacobs, the county chairman, uh, has a long history with, uh, with Tom Swazi. He's supporting Tom. And I think that at the end of the day, notwithstanding the amount of money that Adam has put into this campaign, um, I think that Tom's going to be successful. I think the, the real question is what's the number that he's going to get in terms of votes. Uh, I think that, you know, folks in, in Nassau County politics and Long Island politics, you know, say that if Tom Swazi doesn't get over 60%, you know, that's a very, you know, that's a very poor showing by him. I think Tom's going to do well. Um, I think that it's going to be a very low turnout. Um, and I think I could see Tom doing anywhere between 65 to 70% in the primary. Um, but then he has a general election, which will be very interesting. So that's anticipating my next question. How much, uh, assuming a Tom Swazi victory, how much will this primary have hurt him, even though he ignored his opponent? You know, I don't think it's going to hurt him that much. I, um, I mean, there's a couple, there's a lot of things and a lot of moving pieces out there. I don't think the primary is going to hurt him that much because he hasn't gone negative on Adam Haber. I think that. It hasn't been a negative campaign. And, and to Adam Haber's credit, he hasn't really gone negative on Tom. He's, he's raised very valid issues um, regarding Tom's record as county executive, regarding Tom's record after being a county executive. Uh, you know, with respect, uh, there, there was a big issue about, you know, Tom's representation in connection with certain catering halls um, versus uh, certain labor, uh, certain workers, and whether or not they were being paid their tips. I mean, Adam's raised genuine issues, you know, both of Tom's leadership in, in the county executive, as county executive, and, and post-county executive. Um, Tom, to his credit, hasn't gone negative, and I think that that will help him well to, you know, you know solidify the Democrats. The real challenge is going to be, um, in the general, you have a potential third-party candidate um, yeah, in Andrew Hardwick, who is the, I think, former mayor of Freeport, who may have, uh, who may have secured a line, and there's a potential uh, of him drawing up support that may go to Tom. Uh, Ed Mangano has both the independence line and the conservative line. I mean, this is a very different race in 2009. You know, as, as you recall, Tom lost by, you know, a few hundred votes. 
but at the time, Edmund Gano did not have the conservative line, and he didn't have the independence line. Um, and those were votes that went to both Tom and to a third-party candidate. You know, Ed's going to have those, those lines this year, and that is a lot to make up. So Tom has his work cut out for him, and I think the campaign is going to basically be, you know, I'm not the other guy. And I think that you're going to see, uh, you know, a lot of negative campaigning, a lot of blaming the other person. Um, and uh, I think the voters should get ready for some nastiness that's going to come into October. Imagine political nastiness and negativity. Uh, yeah. say, say, not, say it ain't not, so. Not, not that I was either the victim of it or the perpetrator of, of, uh, of those uh, things as well. Of course not. But. Two questions with regard to that that analysis, and I think you're you're pretty spot on. Is number one, you would think that the county is more. Well, actually, I'm sorry. It's fact that the county is more democratic now than it was four years ago. So Nassau County continues to trend democratic. Um, however, I guess it's the year after a presidential year, and in both times the the Democrat did very well, but we saw four years ago where the Republican uh, was able to, there was a kind of a backlash, you know, in that post-presidential year that, you know, the casual Democratic voters uh, who are lean Democratic or those casual voters don't come out. So it's right. all a question of turnout. So uh, so I guess the first one is the county's more Democratic now. So why shouldn't why shouldn't it be easier for Tom Suozzi to win? It, it, the, challenge, the, the challenge is going to be that... It, that for somebody like you know for a county executive Mangano, what he can do is he can basically take the Tom Swazi playbook of 2001 and you and, and adopt it for himself. And by by saying, I wasn't the one who raised your taxes, he was. I wasn't the I wasn't the one who did these particular things, he did it. I'm the guy who held the line on taxes. I haven't raised your taxes. I haven't done these particular things yet. You know the economy is turning around. We're putting, you know, I've done the deal. I got the deal done in the Nassau Coliseum. You know, you know I tried to keep the Islanders. Tom Swansea promised a lot of things. I delivered. He can actually say that. That's his campaign. You know, Tom, to his, you know, what he's going to simply say and hope the voters recognize is Nassau County is controlled by an, a control board. You know, nothing can be done except, you know, by, you know, four, you know, by seven people sitting on a knife aboard. You know, that's his potential argument that we've got, we're actually in worse shape. You're just not feeling it. That's kind of that's a hard sell to a voter, particularly Democratic voters who don't necessarily vote party line. They may register Democrats, but they register Democrats because on the national level. You know, in, in the North Shore, you know, with the area where I used to represent, they were oftentimes, you know, we'll vote Democrat on the national ticket, but then on the state and the local level, we're going to vote the individual. You know, we had that, you know, I had that challenge in uh, 2010 in my, in my particular race. I think that's going to be the problem right now, where they register Democrat. Maybe it's because it's on social issues like you know choice or marriage equality. So but they're not comes, true. They're not true blue. Uh, blue. They're not pocketbook Democrats. Oh. You know, these aren't folks that say, "Okay, not a problem. Raise my taxes because I love my taxes." Going. You see this, you know, you know, time and time again. You know, I talk to my you know former constituents, you know, and we all grumble about you know property taxes going up. We grumble. About you know the that, current that, that, that darn MTA payroll tax, correct? That, that darn MTA payroll. Okay, tax. we're and here I, with we're here with former state senator Craig Johnson. I want to throw one last question in there. Uh, senator Jeff Klein may, yep. who you served with, and I think yep. uh, still have a relationship with, may have a primary uh, apparently on the Democratic side from uh, for city councilman, soon to be former city councilman. Oliver Capel and a former state attorney general. Uh, is that going to be for the for the independent Democrats? Is that going to be a big fear uh, next year? 
you know, those they are focusing entirely on governing, and that's the thing I have to credit Jeff uh, and his team, you know, Dave Valesky, Dave Carlucci, and Diane Savino. They're not worried about the politics. The politics take care of themselves. You know, they're going to run on an extremely strong record, you know, of accomplishments both for the state as, as well as for their particular district. And whether it's on, you know, Democratic issues like raising the minimum wage or, or balancing the budget consecutively or addressing particular issues that's important to the Democratic electorate, like gun violence or like marriage equality, you know, I would certainly put Jeff Klein's record up in any both general election or Democratic primary election. I don't think he has to worry about anything. He just to keep doing what he's doing and just being continue to be as successful as he's been. Okay. Former State Senator Craig Johnson uh, used to represent the North Shore of Nassau County, now safely ensconced in private practice in a law firm and also on vacation. So thanks for joining us. And uh, we're going to have Michael. we're going to have you on again soon as the political season progresses. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Craig. I want to welcome uh, the news editor of the Jewish Channel, uh, Stephen I. Weiss, who has uh, just completed a series, or maybe it's not complete, of uh, interviewing many of the mayoral candidates uh, for uh, for the city of New York. Stephen, welcome back to Spin Class. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, let's just give us a, give the audience a brief uh, highlight reel. Of uh, some of the interviews, and what did you, who did you find most interesting, uh, and you know what were some of the more more juicy tidbits that you came up with? Well, I think as a reporter, as a journalist, the just the most fun interview was Joe Loda, um, who's running on the Republican line, and uh, whose grandmother is Jewish, whose grandmother, Jewish, his, whose maternal grandmother is Jewish. So, um, you know, if if there are those looking for someone to to vote for someone Jewish uh, in the primary and in the general, uh, but aren't willing to vote for Anthony Weiner, he would be someone you could, you could go with, uh, with, uh, with confidence. But, um, you know, just the, the frankness and the detail with which he speaks is just, uh, you know, it, it's just very good for journalists. To, it's very enjoyable. But, um, you know, I, and, uh, but a lot of what they had to say, I mean, you can really uh, see the difference in their personalities in the interviews, which are all on the Jewish channel. You can watch all uh, third, all of the 30-minute inter- interviews with all the candidates on, on demand um, on your cable uh, provider. And, um, you know, I asked them about, I mean, specific, I think the, the one uniquely Jewish issue uh, this year is Matitza Bepe, the... Um, the uh, ritual and circumcision you, issue. You've written extensively on that issue, so uh, yeah, yeah. And, and isn't it interesting how it seems that all the candidates seem to be in lockstep on the issue? I, I actually found some differences. Okay, um, I found some differences. So I, uh, you know, I asked Christine Quinn, for instance, I asked her, you know, will you be continuing the mayor policy, the mayor's policies? And before I even said or, you know, she said yes. You know, and, and so she plans to continue it wholeheartedly. Um, I think, uh, and Bill Thompson uh, didn't suggest he would take a different policy, but simply said that he felt that uh, not enough of a conversation had been had with uh, with certain community leaders on that, and that he wanted to have that conversation before moving forward. And then Joe Loda explicitly said that uh, that he thinks that asking uh, asking uh, Jewish parents to sign a waiver is a violation. Of uh, of uh, church and state separation, and that uh, and that he thinks he would, and he told me in, in detail that his policy would be, we provide the information about the dangers of the uh, procedure, but we don't require a signature. 
So uh, a libertarian-minded approach. Well, I, I don't know that it's more or less libertarian-minded, uh, but but you know, but he—I mean—he generally does have a number of libertarian attitudes. He he went into some some detail in the interview about how he is a Republican and what ways his Republicanism is different than those you might find in federal candidates uh, or in you know congressional candidates around the country, and um, and uh, and and so yeah, I mean, he, he was more hands off. I mean, you get the sense. I mean, I got the sense earlier in the uh, in the campaign that on this issue specifically, there were there was at least some some direction by some of the candidates to to want to push back against the mayor on this issue and and get some easy votes by by doing some doing some tough talk on the issue. And I mean, certainly Anthony Weiner, who's running a very ethnic campaign, um, has been pretty outspoken on the issue and bringing it up even when it's not at all prompted. Yeah, he actually talked that he was decades ago was apparently involved in the issue. Well, maybe a decade ago. Well, I yeah, so. I mean, something a lot of people don't know about this issue is that this actually surfaced during the Giuliani administration, um, and that uh, and that specifically, you know, the first Mohel restrictions were put in place in, in I believe, 1998 uh, under Giuliani. Yeah, on this issue. Okay, so we're... Uh... What is their approach with regard to the Jewish vote? What do you what do you get a sense of? Are, are they you know the Jewish vote obviously a big constituency, a big uh, you know piece of the Democratic uh, primary electorate? And uh, you know did they any any surprises in there about how they're you know how they're going to tackle the, the issue? Well, I think you know when I asked all of them you know what are they concerned about? I asked them what are some of the some of the some what some of the progress that they've seen during the Bloomberg years that they would be worried about seeing wound back. And I think with a note to the idea that this was a Jewish audience, uh, public safety was something they brought up quite a lot. Um, that for for the Jewish vote broadly, public safety is uh, is is an issue that I think most Jews in the city are are pretty big on. Polling shows they're pretty big on. Uh, whereas, you know, in some other issues, you end up with divisions in the Jewish community, what the ultra-Orthodox care about, what the modern Orthodox care about, what uh, what other affiliated Jews care about, and, and then what secular Jews care about. You end up with some differences about education policy and uh, and other matters. Um, but uh, but on public safety, they're, you know, Jews are pretty pretty much on top. And, and actually, uh, you know, I found it interesting in reviewing some of the polling numbers uh, and some of the the really detailed uh, breakdowns of of voter preferences that Jews are for stop and frisk, head and shoulders above any other group, uh, whether you know white, black, uh, you know Republican, Democrat, rich, poor. Jews love stop and frisk, uh, and um, and and that's a differentiation, I think, perhaps for the Jewish vote, and and they were all eager to play that up. Um, uh, though I'll, I'll note that the one candidate we have not interviewed and who said he will not be here for an interview is Bill de Blasio, um, and he's obviously looking to fully repeal stop and frisk or fully pull back on stop and frisk. He, uh, he has said he will not come for an interview? Uh, he is, well, he is, he is canceled once or twice, and he said uh, he doesn't think he can make it before the primary. Yeah, well, uh, as primary, as new, you know, the primary frontrunner right now, uh, maybe he feels... Uh... Yeah, not necessary. Well, yeah, he is the only candidate who's not coming in, and that could be because he doesn't feel it's important for him for the channel or the Jewish vote or 
he just isn't campaigning in Manhattan anytime soon. It could be any number of reasons. Okay, but, well, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing, uh, you know, out there, how, how do you feel the, the candidates are handling the, uh, rise and fall of, of Anthony Weiner? Well, it seems, I mean, I mean, you can almost sense the agitation. I mean, in the, it, I talked with them a little bit about Anthony Weiner, uh, off camera. Uh, and, uh, and generally they're kind of cautiously, you know, they're kind of cautiously dismissing him. Um, though, uh, though I thought it was interesting, um, they, they do seem to think that he represents some voters that they don't, that A, they want to have, B, they don't want to lose, and C, that they'd be worried about turning off by being too aggressive against him. I think, you know, you saw, um, you, you have seen in one case the Republican candidate McDonald's uh, actually attacking Anthony Weiner in public fora for for what Anthony Weiner has done, for what Anthony Weiner has acknowledged and apologized for, and and the audience booed. The audience was on Anthony Weiner's side, and I think there's a large constituency that says, you know, whether or not I'll vote for Anthony Weiner or not, I, I think he deserves a second chance. I don't want to see other candidates jump on him. All right. Well, the, I, I have to say that this has been a fascinating race, and uh, it's very interesting that you've gotten everybody in the studio. What should what should people do if they want to watch uh, the interviews that you've recorded? Well, we're on cable television. We're on Time Warner Channel 528, IO Optimum Channel 505, and you can see them there. They're available on demand at those channels uh, for quite some time uh, leading into the future. Uh, you go to interviews, uh, and you'll see all of them listed. Okay, and also on your website or YouTube or uh... there are some of it. Some clips are on YouTube uh, in our weekly news broadcast, and also I should mention we're also on Verizon FiOS. You probably have a number of listeners who listen who have that great service, and we're on Channel 900 there. On a little the plug channel. for Verizon there. Thank you, yeah. Stephen I. Weiss, news editor from the Jewish Channel. Hope to have you back again on Spin Class in the very near future. It's been fun. Okay, uh, we have. Uh, Jacob Kornblue, the intrepid correspondent for Yeshiva World News, blogger uh, of, of all things uh, going on political in the Jewish community. Jacob, welcome back to Spin Class. Welcome back, Michael. Okay, so uh, Jacob, uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on, but I want to throw out right now uh, all the uh, the Hasidic groups seem to be running towards Bill Thompson right now, despite the fact that uh, maybe their second choice in many cases with Bill de Blasio seems to be in the lead. So uh, we know that there's a tradition of trying to pick pick the winner, and uh, what's going on? You know, we've seen over the last couple of days endorsements of Bill Thompson all over the place. First of all, it's not all of the Hasidim. It's basically the black vote of Hasidim that endorsed Bill Thompson. If you look at the nine election, uh, Bill Thompson got them um, uh, 3,300 votes in Borough Park. So it's not necessarily that Bill Thompson has the orthodox vote um, locked in. However, wait, wait, uh, I saw. Hold on, Jacob. I saw a picture with Bill Thompson and Dove Hikins, and then uh, and so I see Borough Park covered. Then there was a picture with getting endorsement from Rabbi Niederman, uh, who promised him 10,000 votes. So is it, isn't, isn't it so covered? That's, that's 10,000 votes and another four votes promised by Hikins. Uh, it's a substantial well, explain, amount of ex- votes. Explain to, the, explain to the audience then if, the, if these claims are not credible. First of all, uh, people are more independent thinking than the past. 
so people make up their own minds. Um, yes, there are still community leaders that could drive out the vote. They could bring out a substantial amount uh, of the vote. But the Orthodox vote is fractured. I mean, uh, we expect to see Bill de Blasio just due to his name recognition and the fact that he's a front-runner. He'll gain a lot of votes. Uh, Anthony Weiner, yes, he is almost dead in the polls, but he still has a reputation as being a Jewish advocate uh, for causes uh, within the Jewish community. That's his record. Um, and then you have Quinn that is making a play, at least, uh, to court some uh, in the Orthodox community. The uh, question remains if she'll be successful in that bid. But you cannot uh, outright say that Bill Thompson is the uh, leading candidate um, among Orthodox Jews, and just take into account also that people are expressing themselves in the primary, uh, anticipating there will be a runoff. And in the runoff, the assumption is that Bill Thompson is in the runoff. So if Bill de Blasio and Bill Thompson end, in the, end up in the runoff, people will stay with Bill Thompson. But if it's Bill de Blasio and Christine Quinn in the runoff, even those who supported Bill Thompson might well go with Bill de Blasio, not with Quinn. Okay, what about Elliot Spitzer making uh, trips all over the Orthodox world uh, recently? I was in Borough Park, and uh, you know, he seems to be heavily courting the Orthodox vote as well. He's looking for a big lead. He wants to embarrass Stringer, so I guess he's looking for Stringer's uh, strongest uh, base of support. Uh, in all polls that show that uh, Elliot Spitzer is leading by 19 points, the only uh, group that um, Stringer is leading by uh, also by 2-1 uh, to one is among Jewish voters. And if you count uh, Orthodox voters, that, that lead would even be a, a bigger lead. So he's looking just to extend his lead over Stringer, uh, make him schwitz a little, and uh, embarrass him in the final analysis. Okay, let's get to the... Uh... The interesting city council race down there in southern Brooklyn. Uh, there was a debate this week between uh, all the candidates, and uh, there were apparently some fireworks. So tell the audience. Oh uh, well, that was not a, a, a fireworks. That was a mudslinging match. A mudslinging I mean, match. Okay. Uh, basically, it's a democratic primary. It's not. It's not the general even because the assumption is that whoever gets elected as the democratic nominee is still going to face. Of his opponent by David Strobin on the Republican and conservative line. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, other than Ari Kagan, or if a miracle happens and 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 Igor Obama wins, then uh, David Strobin is guaranteed uh, with uh, uh, getting um, elected as council member. So the fight is really a bit of fight because of the emotions involved. It's a Russian district, but it also has a big uh, amount of uh, Orthodox voters. Uh, Chaim Deutsch, in order to win this primary, needs 100% of the Orthodox vote. Ari Kagan, in order to win this primary, needs 100% or 90% of the Russian vote. So Skabo is making some inroads in the Orthodox community. She has the Sephardic community that is backing her. Uh, oh, so the Sephardic Kagan, community is not with Chaim Deutsch? No. Wow, okay. Uh, Ari Kagan, um, and that was the, the highlight of the event. Uh, it was actually at the end to, uh, when, when uh, Chaim Deutsch had his closing argument. He stood up 
uh, and started uh, throwing uh, uh, um, uh, dabs at uh, Scavo, um, exposing uh, Michael Geller. Okay, where can, every, where can everybody find then, the video? I'm, I'm being told we're out of time, Jacob. I apologize. What, where, where can they so, find the video? The video is uh, posted on Yeshiva World News. It's also Yeshiva posted, World News. Okay, very good. It's also posted on nycelex.com and oh. uh, on YouTube. Okay, fantastic. Jacob, thanks for covering. And we're, next time we're on the show, it's going to be post-primary. Next week is Rosh Hashanah. So uh, September 10th, please go out and vote. Democrat, Republican, whatever you are, please make sure you vote. This is Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm.